Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Steve. Uh, I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis Church. So glad that you're with us. Uh, you know, during our ladder series, we also, one more thing, uh, we ask you guys, uh, if you were willing to fill out this card, to take an eight-week challenge to either start giving or start tithing, if you haven't been tithing, or to give above and beyond. And I want to tell you, we had over 100 people uh, sign up for this across our two campuses. So I was really encouraged by that. So thank you for that. If you're part of that, hopefully you've gotten the first email. But it means so much to us that you are willing to uh, put, you know, put your faith out on the line to really trust what the Lord's doing in your life uh, with your finances. So thanks for being a part of that. Hey, uh, anybody thinking about a vacation yet? It's seven degrees this morning. <laughs> I don't know who likes it when it's seven degrees, but if you're thinking about vacation, we've been, our family has been thinking about uh, spring break and summer vacation and where are we going to be able to go? And we've got kind of a busy spring and summer already planned. But one of the places we love to go, I would just love to get back to Great Smoky Mountains National Park down in Tennessee. It's one of my favorite places. You go to Gatlinburg, and you then you go into... I'm not really a Gatlinburg person, but I love to go into the park and, and hike and see, the, see nature there. And what, there's an interesting phenomenon that, I, that I've noticed. If you've ever been to Great Smoky Mountains or really any other national park, you probably see this. And that's that there's one road from Gatlinburg into the park, and you drive and you get um, that partway down the road, and there's a sign there that says, Welcome to Great Smoky Mountains National Park. You know what I'm talking about, right? And there's always, always a family taking their picture by the sign. And, and I just think it's fascinating because of all the things in the park to take a picture of, the sign is one of the ugliest things, right? <laughs> I mean, I think I know the heart behind this, but I really hope that I, I, w- I always wish that they would just like take a few steps back and look at the beauty that's all around them. Because in reality, the sign is just something that's showing them there is beauty beyond that, Right? There is so much beauty behind that sign. And, and so what happens, if they would just back up a few steps, they would see the beauty that God's created. They'd they, they look back at the bigger picture and see beauty that they could hardly imagine. And the sign is just there to point them to that. And so I believe the miracles of Jesus work the same way. That while we may look at a miracle as an incredible, beautiful masterpiece of God, the truth is that he wants us to see what's behind that miracle. And he wants, what he wants us to do is look beyond that miracle and see the beauty that's behind it. Just like the park uh, that has a sign, when Jesus performs miracle, that miracle is a sign that points us to something greater. And, and so what I want to do uh, throughout this whole series is I want to show you through each miracle that we're going to do, um, we're going we're to look at seven, we're not going to do any miracles, I don't think, unless the Spirit really descends on this place. But we are going to look at seven miracles that Jesus did during this series. And what we're going to see is this, even more than believing in miracles... God wants us to believe in him. Even more than believing in miracles, God wants us to believe in him. And that's why we're going to, starting today, this series called Through the Lens, and we're going to take a seven-week journey through the Gospel of John. And what we're going to do is we're going to stop along the way at these seven miracles, take a snapshot of each one, all right, and then we'll be able to see uh, what's going on. Now, if you uh, read the four biblical accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books in the New Testament, we call them the Gospels, you see 34 distinct miracles performed by Jesus. Now, this doesn't, these are just the ones recorded by these four authors. They, authors, they don't include the virgin birth and um, being raised from the dead and ascending into heaven, all right? 34 miracles while he walked the earth. But we have reason to believe that there were many more. In fact, at the end of his account, John says, Jesus did many other things as well. If all of them were written down, the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. But for this series, we're going to focus on the book of John and the seven miracles recorded there. They're a very diverse set. If you have your Bibles, we're going to start in John chapter 2, 
Um, and that's where we'll stay all day. Uh, so grab your Bible, open to John 2, verse 1. If you don't own a Bible, there should be one around you like this. You can grab one of those. Um, I didn't get a chance to look up the page number, so sorry about that, but it's somewhere in the 700s. Uh, what's that? 740, thank you. 740 on this Bible around you. If you have your own Bible, again, you're on your own. You have to find it. But John 2 is where we're going to start. These seven miracles that are recorded in John are a very diverse set of miracles. They're, they're going to take us on a journey through the life of Jesus, all right, over these seven weeks. And so the miracles we'll discover are in John 2. Um, he turns water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana. This is the one we'll study today. Uh, in John 4, he heals a young boy, uh, the son of a nobleman who was on the brink of death, and he does it from 20 miles away. That's the one we're going to talk about next week. That's a good one, too. In, in John 5, he heals a lame man, lame man sitting by the pool at Bethsaida. In John 6, he feeds 5,000 men and their families with just two loaves of bread and five fish. I can't wait to talk about that one. In John 6, we see Jesus walk on water in the midst of a storm. In John 9, we see Jesus heal a man who was born blind. And in John 11, what has to be one of the best examples of foreshadowing ever written, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Seven miracles, seven very different stories, but all with a common theme that that you'll start to see as we dig in, I think, and that the miracles aren't the point. The miracles, like a camera lens, are just a tool to help us better see the subject. And in our case, the subject is a God who loves his people very much and has a compassionate heart of a loving father. And so turn with me to John 2. We'll look at this very first miracle. Before we do that, some background. This is Israel. By the way, I'm going to try to use this map um, as much as I can during this series to kind of give you a feel for not just when the miracles happen, but where they happen as well. And so I know you probably can't all see this, but hopefully just uh, in generalities, here's what we, here's what we know. Uh, this is Israel, Mediterranean Sea's right here, all right? And uh, this is the Dead Sea, in case you can't see that. Sea of Galilee's up there at the top. Most of Jesus' ministry is focused right in this area right here. So Jesus is born where? In Bethlehem, right? In this little place down here. Uh, he's born in Bethlehem. He immediately, his family uh, fairly immediately flees to Egypt, not on the map, over here, all right, to uh, escape Herod, who's trying to kill uh, this Messiah that was predicted from uh, the Jewish people. So uh, his family flees to Egypt. They eventually settle up here in Nazareth. And uh, that's, that's how that story, by the way, um, I don't know if you know this, but the Old Testament predicts that the Savior, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. He would come out of Egypt, and he would be called a Nazarene. And so if you think about Jesus, just the life of Jesus, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. His family had to flee to Egypt. He came out of Egypt and moved up here to Nazareth, so he was called a Nazarene. So that's what happened there. So um, it, it says that when Jesus came to Nazareth, the Bible says that he then grew in stature, grew in wisdom and stature with God and men. Okay, so this is where Jesus grew up. But the first time we see him as an adult, at 30 years old, he shows up down here, uh, right at the Jordan River, near Bethany, uh, and he is there with a guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a cousin of Jesus. Uh, John, who wrote the book of John, by the way, and John the Baptist are not the same person. Those are two different Johns. Uh, John, who wrote the book of John, eventually became one of the 12 disciples. Uh, he was the only one that lived a full life. Uh, the rest of the 12 were uh, died early. Most of them were martyred. Um, John 
the disciple went on to be held in prison and eventually wrote the book of Revelation that was given to him by God. John the Baptist, on the other hand, was a cousin of Jesus. You may remember this story. John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus. He did a lot of ministry down here in the wilderness. He wore fur uh, and animal skins. He ate locusts and honey. He was a weird dude. Uh, Herod captured him. He was afraid uh, of John the Baptist, the influence he was having. Herod eventually captured him and beheaded him. But for now, John the Baptist still has his head and he's doing ministry right down here along the Jordan River, and Jesus shows up and is baptized by John the Baptist, 30 years old. It's the very first time we see him uh, as an adult. He's baptized by John the Baptist, and a voice comes from heaven. The clouds open up, and a voice comes from heaven, and the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and uh, this voice from heaven says, "You are my. this is my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. Man, talk about a blessing, right, from God himself. Man, if you ever want to bless your kids, how about that blessing at night just before they go to bed, just to say, you're my son, I love you, and with you I'm well pleased. You're my daughter, I love you, and with you I'm well pleased. And so God does that, the Holy Spirit descends from heaven, uh, lands on Jesus, and immediately, right after that, immediately leads him into the wilderness probably up in this area somewhere, in the wilderness, in the Galilean wilderness, where Jesus spends 40 days being tempted by Satan, being tempted by the enemy. The Holy Spirit leads him into temptation. You wonder then later when Jesus says, when you should pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, how that influenced his ministry, right? So this is very beginning of his ministry, 40 days. He goes into the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan. He's led out of there by the Holy Spirit, and he shows up back here down by the Jordan River. 41 now days into his ministry uh, is where this starts. And what he does, he sees some men down here who are followers of John. John the Baptist had baptized him 40 days before that, right? He saw the Holy Spirit come down from heaven, and when he sees Jesus coming by again after his 40 days in the wilderness, John the Baptist points at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, I baptized that guy. I saw God say something to him. I saw the Holy Spirit descend on him. It was what I've been waiting for. That's the guy you want to follow. So John the Baptist is down here with his followers at the Jordan River, because he has his own followers, okay? And he says, that's the guy you want to follow. And so two of his followers leave John the Baptist and go with Jesus, wouldn't you? They go with Jesus, and they, and they said, uh, we want to spend some time with you. And so the Bible says that Jesus spent a day, spent the day with his followers. Now, it's about probably three or four in the afternoon when he runs into them. He spends the rest of the day with them, maybe three or four hours with these guys. They have a little four-hour coffee clatch. And I would love to know what they talk about during that time, because what happens after the three or four hours, the two guys that were led there are John, who's our author, and Andrew, uh, Andrew is the brother of uh, Simon, who we'll eventually know as Peter. The very first thing that happens, they come out of that 41 days now into Jesus' ministry, okay? Uh, 40 days spent in the wilderness being tempted. 41 days into his ministry, they come out of that, and uh, Andrew immediately runs to his brother Simon and says, We found him. We found the Messiah. This is the guy. He spent four hours with him, maybe. And he says, we found the Messiah. This is the guy. And so what happens is... Uh, there are a few people that decide to go with him. Jesus, this is where he gets his first five disciples. Now, I'm telling you all this because I want you to understand, first of all, how early in Jesus' ministry this is. But second of all, there's a lot of, um, a lot of people think, and if you don't read uh, the story of Jesus chronologically, you might believe that the very first thing he did was find 12 guys that are going to help him spread his ministry. But that doesn't happen until much later. Right now, he's got five guys. Here's what he does. He goes uh, to, to two more guys, Philip and uh, 
in Nathaniel, and uh, he says, follow me. All right, and so there are five guys that are going to go with Jesus up to Cana. And so they are uh, John, Andrew, and his brother Peter, and Philip, and Nathaniel. And they all go spend. The, John, Jesus and these first five followers, Scripture says, this is where we're going to pick it up. Uh, these five guys are the ones that go up to Cana. And so here's what happens. John 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Cana's up here. Jesus is attracting his followers down here. This is maybe 100 miles, something like that. I'm not sure. I don't have my um, ruler with me, but it's maybe 100 miles, maybe three or four-day walk. It says on the third day. Maybe it's not quite that far. Maybe it's 60. Uh, It says on the third day, Jesus went to Cana, so a wedding took place, so they're going up there. So really, I'm I'm telling you, it's 43, 44 days into Jesus' ministry when this happens, all right? 43 days into his, uh, after he's baptized. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, look at how this is written, all right? This is going to, we're going to come back to this in a minute. This is really important. Jesus' mother, Mary, was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited also. I want you to just think about that for a minute, all right? Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Verse 4, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. But don't anybody drink it because it's wine and you're Christians and you're not supposed to drink it. That's what Jesus said, right? No, that's not what he said. They did so, verse 9, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where the wine had come from, though the servants had drawn the water new. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was one of the first signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And then after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, that's important for next week. Now, to understand the significance of this miracle, we first have to understand the importance of what it would have meant to a family, a Jewish family, to run out of wine at a wedding celebration in first century Palestine. You know, in our culture today, a wedding typically takes place Maybe over two days, right? Maybe Friday night, you have a rehearsal, rehearsal dinner, the family gets together, uh, and then on Saturday is the big gathering. People come, they gather, the ceremony lasts half an hour, an hour, uh, and then they take pictures for four hours, and then you go to the reception, right? And then you get together and you have a big dinner. That's kind of how it goes. But really, it's a day and a half, two days, uh, is what the wedding lasts in today's culture. Well, in this time, it was a six to seven day event. It was a week-long festivity in a small village like Cana. I mean, think about it. There's no cable television, right? There's no uh, video games to play. There's nothing to do. There's no movie theater. And so it's a village-wide celebration. It really is one of the few times where they're able to get together and have um, a real celebration and a culture where there's poverty and constant hard work. This, This is kind of a festival of joy for the people that are there. And anyone who was invited, it's one of the truly special occasions of life for everybody in the village. It was really a time of celebration. And in this culture, uh, in the East, hospitality was a sacred duty. 
I don't think we can really grasp the weight and severity of this moment. I mean, it wasn't so much the loss of wine was a big deal as what it meant for the bride and the bridegroom and their family that was putting on this wedding. There would have been terrible shame for the couple, uh, for the family. They would, probably would have been looked at as, did they not have enough money? Could they not? Um, you know, it's kind of like if you declared bankruptcy today, uh, you, you know, there's some guilt and some shame with that. But what if you had to do it on a reality TV show? You know, and so everybody could see what happened. Well, everybody in the village knew this family, and when they ran out of wine, it may have signaled to everybody, hey, these guys are broke. And there would have been some, some shame and just some despair that went with that, right? And so uh, that's kind of what's happened uh, on this. So on what was meant to be one of the greatest days of their lives, it was close to becoming one of the worst days of their lives until Jesus stepped in and made this change. But still... I'm forced to wonder when I read this, why did Jesus perform this miracle? Like, we are 43 days into, 44 days into Jesus' ministry. This is the first thing that he chose to do. To, this, to me, if you watch a superhero movie, you know that moment where the superhero first tests their powers and they're trying to see how they work? Like, you got Iron Man with his rocket jets, you know, and he's hovering around uh, his, his lab, or when Spidey first, you know, shoots his webbing across his bedroom, and, and you know, like, they're trying out their powers, right? Is, this, is that what this is? Is this Jesus kind of exercising his yayas for the first time? Is that, what's going on here? Is that one of those moments? And, and more than that, why did he make this the first? Right? The first has some significance, right? You only get one chance to make a good first impression. This was the very first miracle that he did. Well, I, I think after reading this and, and studying it this week and Kevin and I working together on this, I think I can see three reasons. I've included these in your notes. Uh, the number one reason, I think the first reason that Jesus performed this miracle is this. It's very simple. Jesus wants to help. He wants to help. Here's just what I love about this miracle. On the surface, it seems so insignificant. Like, cool party trick, Jesus. Way to go. That's really good, making wine. But, but don't miss the significance. If the God of the universe can take substantial interest in a wedding feast in the small town of Cana, it shows how interested he is in the details of our lives. Right? He wants to help. We, we tend to think of God sometimes as this macro God. Like, he's everywhere all the time. And he's so busy, like, keeping the planet spinning and preventing war from breaking out and make sure that the sun shines tomorrow that he doesn't have time to take an interest in the affairs of men. But you never know when or how God is going to show up. And that's what I love about this story. Like, in this one moment, Jesus shows us that he is the God who shows up when we run out. I know this weekend some of you are on empty. You've run out of strength. You've run out of friends. You've run out of money. You've run out of hope. He's not just the God who turns water into wine. God is great, not just because nothing is too great for him, but because nothing is too small for him. He cares about what you care about. If, if God cares about a couple running out of wine at their wedding, then he cares about you. Even the smallest details of your life don't go unnoticed by him. Scripture tells us that he has numbered the hairs on your head, that not even a sparrow can fall from the sky without God taking notice, and yet you're so much more valuable than sparrows. He's a loving father. He's a good dad. This couple needed help. They couldn't come up with a solution to the problem on their own time and their own way. They needed a miracle. And that's where Mary, the mother of Jesus, steps in. See, Cana was very close to Nazareth. You can see here, very close distance. Nazareth is where Jesus grew up. Cana is not very far away, maybe three to four or five miles, maybe as far as from here to Westfield, if you think about it that way. 
right? And, and it, remember at the very beginning of the verse, it says that Jesus, it said Jesus' mother was there. And then it says Jesus and his disciples were also invited. So Jesus was kind of an afterthought at this wedding, the way it's written, right? Mary was there. Mary was invited. Oh, and by the way, Jesus and his disciples were also invited. Jesus, uh, John is saying, when he writes this, he's saying, this is Mary's thing. This is Mary's wedding. In fact, you see that. She's played a prominent role in the wedding. She's the one that is aware that they'd run out of wine, right? She's the one that brings it to Jesus. She clearly had kitchen privileges, which means that she was probably on the inside. In fact, many scholars think this may have been a relative of Mary's who was getting married. Maybe it was uh, one of her nieces or nephews, or maybe even one of Mary's daughters, one of Jesus' younger sisters. Look at how Mary brings this crisis to Jesus' attention. She doesn't hoot and holler, right? She doesn't threaten. She doesn't even play the mom card, which moms, you have that card, right, in your wallet, ready to play at any time. She doesn't play that. She makes a very simple statement. She says, we have no wine. It's her problem statement. We have no wine. I wonder if you had the chance today to see Jesus face to face, what would you say? What would your problem statement be? What's the area of your life where you need Jesus' help? We have no money. I have no job. I'm sick. I'm injured. I need healing. I'm lonely. We're overwhelmed. I need help. Where's that area in your life where you need Jesus' help? See, what Mary didn't do in this situation is as significant as what she did do. She didn't propose her own solution and try to get Jesus to go along with her, right? She didn't start ordering people around and take matters into her own hands. She simply posed the statement, we have no wine. And then watch this. She turned to the servants and said, do whatever he tells you to. (laughs) Now, knowing what I know about Jesus, all right, I can't possibly think of a better piece of life advice. (laughs) Do what Jesus tells you to do. No matter what your life situation is, no matter what problems you're facing, no matter what you might think is standing in your way for today, the absolute best piece of advice I could ever give you is do what Jesus tells you to do. Now, it's an easy piece of advice to give. It's a harder piece of advice to follow because sometimes it means giving up on relationships that we've invested in. Sometimes it means dropping a habit or a pastime that you really enjoy. It might mean changing the way you spend your money or your time when you decide to do whatever Jesus tells you to do. But I'm here to tell you, as somebody who spent more of my life outside God's will than inside it, if you want to live a blessed life, you need to do what Jesus tells you to do. That's what Mary tells the servants. Do whatever he tells you to do. And so they fill up some jars with water. These aren't ball jars either. These are big fellas, 20 to 30 gallons each. So really as much as a, uh, six of them, as much of, uh, as 180 gallons altogether. That's some wedding feast right there. And then he tells them to take some to the head waiter. Now, if I'm the servant, I'm a little fearful right here, aren't you? Because I've just seen them fill these jars with water and we scoop some out and I see that it's water. And he says, take it to the head waiter, and what is going to happen? Am I going to tell him it's wine? What's he going to say? He's likely to spit it back in my face, right? I'm just a servant. But the waiter takes a ladle, and he lifts it to his mouth. You can almost feel the tension in the air in this moment. You can cut the suspense with a knife, right? He takes a scoop, sips it, and he declares, this is the best wine. 
This is the really good stuff. He says, most people serve the good wine first and bring out the cheap stuff when everybody's already drunk. So if you're wondering, is this really alcoholic wine? Well, the scripture points to the head waiter saying, this is the stuff they usually serve before people get drunk. And so if it's not alcoholic wine, I'm not sure how they get drunk (laughs) on, what they get drunk on. But in case you're wondering, it probably is alcoholic wine. But he says, this couple has saved the best for last. See, God will always wait until the right time has come in your life. Jesus says, well, my moment's not yet come. You had to wait for the right time, right? He will always wait till the time has come. Sometimes our timing and his timing are not the same. But God doesn't skimp. He never holds back his best from the people that he loves. He wants the absolute best for your life, even if it means, even if it means that you have to wait until the moment is right. He will not skimp. Just ask anyone who's experienced a blessing from God that they had to wait for. Ask anyone that had to pray a long time before something was delivered. Ask anyone who's experienced a miracle by waiting on God. Ask anyone who faithfully waited to get married until the time was right. They had to find the right person or get themselves in the right situation. Even if it took a long time, a lot longer than they thought it would, God saved the best for last. Ask any couple who spent years praying for a child. Like when God delivered that blessing, he didn't skimp. Ask anybody who prayed for healing for a long time. Ask my friend Bud back there who prayed for new lungs for years. And just last year got a double lung transplant. Look at him walking around this place now like he owns the place. And he'll tell you God doesn't skimp. I've got to tell you that Bud's got a friend with him today. His friend Dave Hanna is sitting a couple chairs over from him. Dave just had a double lung transplant this winter too. And this is his first weekend here. And he's walking around this place. They're walking miracles in our building right here. God does not skimp. He doesn't hold back his best. But there were other reasons that Jesus performed this miracle too. The second one, uh, I think, is this. It tells us in verse 11. It says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Through this miracle, Jesus revealed his glory. He revealed his glory. How did Jesus reveal his glory? Well, that word glory in the Greek is the word doxa. It means splendor and majesty, but it also means a good opinion regarding one. And so uh, in doing this, the people who saw it experienced a good opinion of Jesus. And when it comes to the miracles of Jesus, we tend to be fascinated with the power of God to do these works, and, and we should. I mean, I think to some degree, that's okay to, to look at a God who's so mighty that he can do something like turning water into wine. The power of God is unfathomable. I mean, here's a man who turns simple water into fine wine. How does that happen? Where, where did he get the grapes? Right? I mean, just think about the mechanics of this thing. Fine wine, the best wine has to be aged over years, Right? I mean, 7, 8, 10, 12 years, how does he do that? It normally takes time time to make wine, right? And God did it in seconds. By the way, if God can accelerate time to age some grapes several years over the course of a couple seconds, can we at least admit that maybe it's possible that God could create the earth in seven days and accelerate time to make it look like it's aged over billions of years? Isn't that at least possible? The power of Jesus to turn water into wine is, well, it's miraculous. Miracles are amazing, but is that why Jesus did it? Is the amazing, miraculous power of God the glorious thing that Jesus was drawing to his disciples' attention? 
Or, or let me ask it this way. If you sat here the last 20 minutes and you've reflected on this miracle and what happened and why it happened, is that what your attention's been drawn to? Oh, I wish Jesus would make me some wine. Is that what you're thinking about? It's five o'clock somewhere, right? You know, most of us are. Most of us are attracted to that power, but, but to do so, I think, is missing the point. I don't think Jesus was trying to draw the disciples' attention to his miraculous power of God. I think he was drawing their attention to something much greater. I think Jesus was drawing to their attention to the heart of God. He desperately wants them to see that there's a heart of a loving father behind this miracle, a father who loved them so much that he sent his one and only son to rescue them from a sinful world. Now, here's why I think this, okay? The Jewish people believed in the God of Genesis chapter 1, the God who created the heavens and the earth just by opening his mouth and speaking it into existence. They would have known the God of Exodus who sent 10 plagues on Egypt and who rescued their ancestors from Egypt from slavery, the God who parted the Red Sea, the God who gave the law to Moses, the God who felled the giant for David, the God who, against all odds, led their people, their ancestors, into the promised land. And listen to how Jesus speaks of the powerful miracles he performs. In John 4, 48, he says, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll never believe. And at the end of this miracle, in, in verse 11, it says this, John two eleven: What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And to really understand the third reason Jesus performed this miracle, I think we need to understand who benefited from it. Did the couple getting married benefit from this miracle? Well, yeah, sure they did. But, but if we look again, there's no indication in this scripture that the couple even knew what happened. Right? We don't know that the couple knows. Who, who knew? It says the head waiter didn't know where the wine had come from. Who we know know are Mary and the servants, and the disciples. I mean, let's not forget who pointed out to Jesus in the first place. It was Mary. Who knew what Jesus did? Well, it was Mary, the disciples, and the servants, the five guys that came with him, John, Andrew, Peter, Nathaniel, and Philip. And Scripture says, because they saw it, they believed. I think that's the third reason that Jesus does these miracles, is because Jesus wants disciples who believe. See, the truth with all the miracles we see in Scripture that the people who benefit on the surface are not the people that Jesus did the miracle for. You know how I know? Because this couple eventually ran out of wine again. Right? I mean, the people whom he healed eventually died. The 5,000 got hungry again after they ate. But who gets to see the miracles happen? Well, his followers. And because of that, they believe in him. The people who walk with Jesus get to see the miracles happen, and it's his hope that they will believe. The biggest problem, the biggest problem that most of us have when it comes to God is this. We, we don't really want God. We just want his wine. We just want his wine. We don't want the fullness of God, everything that comes with him, the joy and the sorrow, you know, the pain and the happiness, the excitement and the wrath. It all comes together. It's all a package. And so many times, we don't want that from God. We just want his wine. We'll go to God when we're hungry. We need something. He better stay out of my love life. Better stay out of my financial life. Don't go tell me how to live. But man, when I'm in trouble, it's the first place I'll go is I'll go begging for a miracle, right? But if you go around seeking miracles, you probably won't find any. And you may not find God. But if you hang around Jesus long enough, you'll eventually see some miracles. 
As you've already seen and experienced, you'll see throughout this series, the miracle is just a tool. Like the lens of a camera is a tool to capture the beauty of a subject. The miracle is a tool to help us clearly see the heart of a compassionate father. A father who sent his only son for us. A son who humbled himself to death on a cross. A son who took away our sin. A father who is stronger than any problems that you will face. More than believing in miracles. God wants us to believe in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the just wondrous ways you reveal yourself to us. We thank you that even through reading about a wedding in the obscure town of Cana some 2,000 years ago, that we can be drawn to your beauty and the beauty that lies beyond this simple act uh, that, that some of us can't even fathom and imagine how it happened, but we can see your heart and the heart of the Father through this. God, help us to desire you. Help us to know that, that you are stronger than anything that we can overcome and to know that to, to, to get that, we can't just go looking for the miracle, for that one piece of help that we need, but God, that we need to take you in your fullness, that you have overcome and that with that overcoming, it might come some strife, it might come some trouble, it might come some changes in our lives, but God, that you're there and you are powerful and you are compassionate and you love us and you are well-pleased with us. God, help us to see that even as we sing, even as we go our way today. Reveal yourself to us in Jesus' name. Amen.